Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. We are at the end of the regular season in a strange, strange 2020 campaign. We have a lot to talk about in terms of those college football playoff rankings that came out on Selection Sunday. We're going to do that in the first segment, just a general what they got right, what they got wrong. And then in our next couple segments, we're going to talk about the state of bowl games in the future, especially around the Rose Bowl getting effectively canceled this year. Um, I will not call any bowl game being held in Texas the Rose Bowl. It just will not happen. Um, And then we're going to talk about coaches helping themselves. This is a great topic that I'm really excited to talk about with John. He's been working on some research around this, and uh, he's, he's putting together an article for Saturday Blitz on this subject. So it'll be great to talk about that further. And then in our last two segments... You know, exactly as you'd expect, given the time of year, we're going to look at New Year's six matchups in our penultimate segment. And then in the final take, we're going to be looking at those two college football playoff semifinals in Arlington and New Orleans. I know that was a mouthful, John. Uh, I haven't let you get in word edgewise yet. So how are you doing this week? Yeah, well, what else is new, right, Zach? No, I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm really excited to dive in with this. We got a a lot to talk about this week with everyone, so we're real excited to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, between championship weekends happening, congratulations to your Crimson Tide, by the way, on another SEC title under Saban. And congrats to your Ducks. Yeah, the uh, Pac-12. It pretty much happened exactly how we said it was going to happen to everybody, by the way. It, it, yeah, it, it was a strange, strange... Uh, a strange way for the Ducks to limp into a Pac-12 championship in a year where they finish runner-up in the North, but 2020. Just like the Rose Bowl happening in Texas, I mean, it's pretty fitting for this kind of weird, wacky year, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it, it's all strange, and, and we'll definitely talk about that one more in a little bit. But before we get into some of these deeper topics, I just want to, you know... The college football playoff is the college football playoff. And people have heard me ranting about, you know, the selection committee and what 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 is wrong with this entire system. But before I go into that ugly rant, John, let's talk for a bit. What did the college football playoff get right this year? Yeah, I mean, I uh, it's probably a shorter list to talk about what they got right than what they got wrong. Uh, I mean, personally, I think number one and number two were pretty obvious after championship Saturday with Clemson, you know, really handling Notre Dame with ease. I think it was pretty clear that they were better than Notre Dame. Um, And I don't think that surprised anybody or or, or many people uh, with Trevor Lawrence back and Clemson kind of looking like the complete team that we thought they could be all season long. So I think one and two were definitely right. I don't have any issue with Ohio State at number three. I know that was one of the bigger topics of discussion the last few weeks was how did Ohio State deserve to be in the college football playoff, uh, having only played six games. And I think there's definitely something to that because I think, you know, the less games you play, the less wear and tear you have. But I don't know if there was anybody else outside of the group of five ranks that no one really wants to talk about that really had more of a deserving chance than Ohio State. When you look at a team like Texas A&M, 
they had a shot to prove that they were one of the top four teams in the country when they played Alabama earlier in the year, and they lost by 28 points. So to me, I mean, they had that opportunity. Notre Dame, I think there's a legitimate argument to exclude Notre Dame after their showing in the ACC championship game. Yeah, they beat Clemson earlier in the year at home in overtime with Trevor Lawrence sidelined. And with Lawrence back and Clemson mostly full strength, that wasn't a competitive ball game. So we, do we really need to see Notre Dame, who already had a championship weekend clash against the Tigers, do we really need to see them in the playoff again this year? Does anyone out there, even Notre Dame fans included, Zach, think the Irish have a legitimate shot at topping Alabama in the pseudo Rose Bowl this year? I, I mean, I think it would be it would be the biggest upset in college football playoff history because this is the biggest opening spread uh, in college football playoff history. So I personally wouldn't have put Notre Dame in there after that showing, Zach. I would have gone Cincinnati. I think the Bearcats were really undervalued. I think if you look at them, their statistical profile, they've got a lot of quality wins. The AAC was a really good conference this year. People look at a three-point win over Tulsa, and that, like that's not impressive. But the Golden Hurricane were a damn good football team this year, and I think they proved that week in and week out. Coming into that AAC title game, they lost a competitive game to Oklahoma State in the season opener, and that was their only blemish on their record. They were a really good, complete football team, really quality defensive team, and I think that was a really good win for them. And I mean, Cincinnati came in with the number one defense in college football. They're top 15 in offense. They're a complete football team all around. And I would, I don't think personally that Cincinnati would win the national championship this year, but I've already seen what Notre Dame could do against one of the top teams in the sport. I've already seen what Texas A&M can do against one of the top teams in the sport. I've seen what Florida can do. I've seen what Georgia can do. I've seen enough of Oklahoma in the college football playoff, to be honest, and seen them get blown out several times, including the last several years. So I would have gone Cincinnati if for no other reason than you know, I think we had a good understanding of what every other team is. Every other team had a real reason to leave out. There was no real reason to leave the Bearcats out, except for the fact that they're not among college football's elite in the ruling class world of, uh, of college football. And they never really had that chance. And obviously, I think Coastal being as low as they were, I think if I'm looking, they were 12th. I mean, putting Coastal below Iowa State, for instance, doesn't sit well with me. I think that's a, a pretty big joke considering the Cyclones finished with with three losses. Uh, as much as I've, you know, touted Iowa State all season long and carried water for that program, was really hoping that they would be able to get over the top just for the historical um, the historical aspect of them having not won a conference title in over 100 years. I thought that would have been a really cool storyline. But, you know, Coastal's done everything they could do as well. I mean, they probably have just as much of an – they don't have the same statistical profile as Cincinnati, but they arguably have a better resume than the Bearcats having beaten a Power 5 program in the beginning of the year, even though it's just Kansas. But beating a Power 5 program, scheduling a team like BYU with three days' notice, and beating the Cougars as well, um, I think it hurt them losing the opportunity to play and, and beat Louisiana for a second time. This year, I don't think that would have done enough to push them up the standings that much. Obviously, I'm really disappointed that they're not going to get a crack at a power five team. Yeah, you know, it's I said I wanted to go into what I think they got right first. And so I'm going to do that. I promised everyone I would do that, I, you know. And for as much as I talk about, you know, missing the BCS 
formula. The college football playoff selection committee selected it exactly as the BCS rankings would have spit it out. So they got that right. You know, mealy-mouthed, double-speak, selective restrictions against some teams, ignoring those restrictions for others, being completely opaque, circular, bass-ackwards in their logic throughout their entire plotting reveal show and throughout every week that they've revealed rankings— they hit it like the BCS would have, at least at least for those top four. And I also want to give them a shout-out. Three of the five group of five conferences are represented in those final top 25 rankings. Five different group of five teams made it. Six, if you want to include BYU among those ranks, even though they're independent. Um, but, you know, they're... Though I think they were ranked lower than they should have been in every case, I think they at least had some semblance of respect in recognizing that they had to, you know, recognize that group of five teams did excel in this strange, strange season. That said, you know, how they got there is is what they got most wrong. You know, the logic that they've spit out week after week it's just it's it's illogical and it it is something that really if we're ever going to have the 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 championship be anything more than mythical you have to get beyond this kind of logic specifically you know this idea that losing to louisiana can be a quality loss for iowa state but beating Iowa State is no longer a quality win for Louisiana. And by extension, beating Louisiana isn't as quality a win for a team like Coastal Carolina. Those sorts of logics are selectively applied. And that's why, as you mentioned, you have three lost teams in Florida and Iowa State, albeit, you know, conference finalists, great, grand, wonderful. You're still a three-loss team. You know, they're ahead of undefeated Coastal Carolina. That's a travesty, especially Iowa State, given those, you know, in a season where we have very few transitive opportunities to evaluate common opponents, we had one there with those two teams, and it got completely ignored. You look at the rest of their schedule, you know, quality wins line up fairly easily there be it what they may but also considering that one loss indiana got left out you know you consider the hoosiers went six and one this season they were able to rebound after even after losing michael Penix jr were able to keep winning and they lost him after the ohio state loss so you know considering that they've still been able to bounce and continue winning that they got left out entirely from the New Year's Six, that's a travesty as well. You know, it's not just group of five teams that get left out. But oftentimes it's, if you have a brand name, you're going to have a better chance than if you're a team like Indiana that's more known as a basketball school. Um, you know, Iowa State's a sweet story. We've, we've both really enjoyed seeing what Matt Campbell and the Cyclones have done this year and what they've done the past couple of years. 
um, you know, honestly rewarding them. I understand it's a new face in there. It's kind of nice to see. But a three-loss Florida team, do we really need to see them playing in a New Year's Six Bowl? They've had those chances, you know. If you're not going to throw that second lifeline to a group of five team, give it to a Hoosiers team. If you're not going to hold six games against Ohio State, why are you holding seven against Indiana? That's a great point. I, you know, I think Iowa State and Indiana are on the same level in terms of program quality for football. And it's strange to see them overvalue Iowa State and undervalue Indiana in that capacity. Um, And, you know, like you said about Florida, like, do I think Florida is probably one of the 10 best teams in the country? Yeah, I, I think they probably are. But the difference between a team like Florida and a team like Indiana and even down to the group of five ranks is Teams like Florida get mulligans every year. The committee likes to pretend, and a lot of college football writers and fans and pundits like to pretend that that loss to LSU didn't happen. And yeah, LSU rebounded nicely. They beat Florida. They beat Ole Miss and finished 5-5. Five and five. But that loss still happened. LSU still went into the swamp and beat Florida. And as statistically improbable as it is for anybody out there who follows Bill Connolly's uh, SP Plus rankings, I think in his postgame win expectancy, LSU had a 0.4% chance of winning that game and did it. I mean, it was the statistically most improbable loss of the season for the Gators. It's still a loss. That still happened, and no other type of program other than the Floridas, the Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Ohio States would get that kind of a pass for that late of a season loss. Final weekend of the regular season uh, for the Gators losing to a 500 LSU team. That, I think, is the biggest issue I see with this. Yeah, certainly. It, it was just ridiculous all around how they came to these final rankings. They got the top four as right as they could if they, you know, to make sure that they weren't going to give access to a team like Cincinnati. They made astounding decisions all through the rest of the rankings, though, and I think that's where the real issue is with this, you know. There's no consistent metric to this, and that's what gets people the most. But you know what I think, honestly, one of the things they got most wrong, and we'll talk about this more in the next next segment, consider this your teaser, everybody. But the fact that the Rose Bowl isn't happening, you know, that's in itself really awkward but the way they announced this that they waited until the night before the final rankings were released as conference championship games are happening i mean the college football playoff bungles so much but to you know to basically make it look like you're scrambling last minute on something like this it, it it's amateur hour it's that's exactly what it is. It's amateur hour. So on that note, I'm going to leave the vitriol there. Let's take a quick break, John. And when we come back, we can talk about that Rose Bowl a bit more because I think it's coming off the schedule is endemic of a bigger situation we need to talk about in terms of what bulls are really even going to mean after 2020. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back.
Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've been talking about the college football playoff rankings, and the big thing that's happening with the college football playoff this year is that the Rose Bowl is no longer a part of it. You know, we we mentioned before we went to break that one of the worst ways that the college football playoff handled their rankings, you know, and everything they've done this year is just the way they timed that last-minute announcement of shifting from the Rose Bowl to Jerry World in Texas. You know, this year we're not going to get images of the sunset in the Arroyo Seco. We're not going to get that, you know, the, the sunshine glistening off helmets and off the San Gabriel Mountains. We're not going to get that iconic venue. And frankly, John, the entire edifice of the bowl season and, I mean, college football's mythology is built on, you know, the stories that have been constructed out of the granddaddy of them all. And without those myths... I think after 2020, we might find ourselves asking, why in the hell do we continue to cling to an anachronistic postseason system that really enriches only the, you know, the gladhanders and gaudy jackets? Are we going to change our mentality around this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. It's always been one of the biggest arguments for keeping the bowl system in place was the Rose Bowl, because that meant so much to you know, particularly Big Ten and Pac-12 schools because of the history of that game. And I mean, who doesn't love watching the Rose Bowl game? I mean, it is aesthetically the best looking game year in and year out to watch. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that 2020, I mean, things are obviously in many capacities going to be different going forward from here on out. And I, I think we're going to see a pretty significant change and a lot of things in college football. And I do think, I think there's always going to be bowl games in some capacity, because I'd be stunned if we ever get past eight teams in my lifetime for a playoff. I do think we're eventually heading to an eight team playoff, but I don't see it really ever going further than that. To be honest with you, I would be surprised if we went further than that. And I would be honestly probably against going further than that, unless we got to a point where we were paying players to to play these games. I, I personally, I think that's the conversation that needs to happen before we look at expanding the playoff any further than it even already is, um, in my opinion. So, but yeah, I, I think it, it's definitely going to be sad not to um, watch a Rose Bowl game this year, particularly because my team's playing in this weird Rose Bowl game in Arlington, Texas, and I mean it's been. You know, one of my favorite memories as a college football fan was watching my team win a national championship at the Rose Bowl in January of 2010 against Texas, the first national championship I ever got to experience in my lifetime. Um, so that stadium's always hold has always held special meaning for me as well and for so many people. So it's definitely going to be strange. But, yeah, I, I do think there's going to be some changes to bowl season. I mean, how much meaning does bowl season have Zach when you look at the schedule and you see teams like two and eight South Carolina playing in a bowl game. And initially at least a team like army who was nine and two, not getting an initial bowl invite until Tennessee had a, a COVID outbreak and army got invited to replace the balls in the Liberty bowl against West Virginia. But I think it shows the, how little bowl season really means because it used to be a reward for teams who were 500 or better 
but obviously there's changes this year with a lot of teams opting out. But I mean, bowl season kind of loses all meaning to me when you watch a team like South Carolina get the opportunity to play in a bowl game. Yeah, I think that's one thing, is the NCAA basically ripped off the Band-Aid and showed how damn ridiculous this whole system is when they said there are no minimum requirements anymore to qualify for these games and said you can go if they're going to take you. It, it, it pretty much revealed it for the farce that it is. And, you know, we talk about these things as rewards for the players, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, you mentioned you wouldn't want to expand the playoff without, you know, actually seeing some money go to these players. And honestly, that's the question we need to ask ourselves is the rigors of travel, of media days, of these obligatory activities that they have at these both, you know, weeks. You have to go for an entire week and be on your best behavior and be, you know, just really kind of locked into that ironclad focus when everybody else is getting their, you know, winter break. And, uh, you know, we've already, as you mentioned, plenty of teams have already said thanks, but no thanks to this. They said, we're not going to do unpaid overtime after we did an unpaid, you know, regular season under pandemic conditions that we had no control over. We, you know, in most schools gave their players the opportunity to decide for themselves. 21 of those rosters said thanks, but no thanks. And that's just so far. And, you know, we'll have more stories like Tennessee coming out with COVID issues. It's been happening week after week, all season long. But, you know, I mean, beyond that, just look at, you know, we have a two and eight, you know, we have two and eight teams playing in the bowl, as you see said in the in the postseason and that's with 15 bowl games canceled that's with 15 games off the schedule entirely and that doesn't include the celebration bowl you know the black college football national championship that's just fbs bowl games 15 of them are gone and yet we still had a hard time finding places for a nine and two army because money talks and it, it, it doesn't matter if you're 2-8 and eight, if you can sell more tickets, which, let's come down to it. That's the whole reason this bowl game is moving from the Rose Bowl to the Jerry World Bowl. And that's how I'm going to refer to this damn thing from now on. It's the Jerry World <laughs> Bowl. This is not a Rose Bowl, people. It never will be a Rose Bowl at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. You know, we, you know the closest corollary is the what was it, the 1943 game that shifted to Durham, North Carolina when Duke and Oregon State played there because, you know, Pearl Harbor happened less than a month earlier and yet, you know, the, the West Coast was under imminent danger, it was thought at that point. You're not going to have a big football game out there to make an easy target. This has nothing to do with anything like that. This is a state put down sensible pandemic regulations said you can't host thousands of people in a stadium and they're taking it to Texas where in Arlington, you look at county by county figures and you have higher positivity rates in, in Texas where they're going to be holding the game than you do in Los Angeles right now where they took the game away from. So don't, tell me 
a bullshit line that this was about COVID-19 and making the players safer. And that big bullshit line, I'm really sick of hearing the abundance of caution. Because an abundance of caution was what the Big Ten and Pac-12, the Mountain West and the MAC initially did. An abundance of caution is what Old Dominion did even after all this and said, no, we're not coming back because... It, this is more important than a football game. That's an abundance of caution. Moving your game from the Rose Bowl to Jerry World is not an abundance of caution. It's taking it from one hot spot and putting it in an even bigger hot spot because the idiots in power in that hot spot will let you sell a shitload of tickets to that game. And frankly, that's really stupid. And I'm going to check myself here and let you jump in, John, because I'm going to say even more that that's going to be profane and probably get this a nice big R rating this week. So, yeah, well, probably wouldn't be the first time. Um, yeah, I, one of the like most hollow threats I saw or maybe I've ever seen was Brian Kelly saying that unless the game was moved to a place where they could have fans that they might opt out of the playoff. Like, who are you kidding saying you're going to opt out of the playoff? Do you think Notre Dame's athletic director and president would ever sign off on the Irish turning down millions of dollars in playoff revenue just because they couldn't have a few fans at the stadium? Like, that was never going to happen. I mean, maybe Brian Kelly wishes, since he's got to play Alabama again, he could opt out of the college football playoff and not have to take that beatdown that's coming. Um in a couple of weeks, but no, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think you make a, a, an excellent point. I, I, it's all about revenue. The fact that the um, Arlington, Texas is going to allow 16,000 fans in the stadium. That's where it's at. They can sell 16,000 tickets, whereas they could before sell zero. And you can argue that it's so, You know, players can have their families and stuff like that there. And, yeah, that's a nice little thing to say to make it sound better to sell it. But, obviously, it's because of the little bit of revenue they can get. They can jack ticket prices, and they can try to make a bit of profit off of this game, um, at least from a ticket revenue standpoint. I mean, obviously, they'll make a profit just from TV rights um, in general. But, yeah. It's a farce. It's it's ridiculous, but it's it's a perfect encapsulation of the 2020 college football season to see the Rose Bowl moved to Arlington, Texas. Every one of those players would have to have 75 family members in the stands to get to 16,000. And that's assuming about a, you know, I mean, you think traveling parties, every person on the sidelines would have to have about 70 to 75 people in the stands to get to 16,000. This sure as hell wasn't about families, everybody. It, it, it It's about greed. It always has been. That's college football. Welcome to the party. That's what we do here. But you know what? Honestly, greed seems to be selective, John. And... We're going to talk about that a bit more in the next segment. Uh, Looking at the coaches poll, you know, we talk a lot about the college football playoff. We've talked in the past about the AP poll, but it's time to dive in and see what the coaches think about themselves. Because if you're not willing to help yourselves, who the hell else is going to help you, right? On that note, we're going to take another quick break. Grab yourself something to drink, refresh, rehydrate. 
use the restroom, do whatever it is you need to do to get yourself ready for this next one because it's going to be rip-roaring. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just finished up talking about what in the world are bowl games going to look like after 2020, given how bowl games look in 2020. But you know what? Bowl games get slotted based on what humans think about these teams. And, you know, one big poll that we haven't talked about much this year so far is the coaches poll. It doesn't have quite the outsized power that it used to when it was part of the Bowl Championship Series formula. Um, But, you know, it still has real relevance. It's one of the 13 NCAA selectors. Um, You know, its proclamations do count for a national championship. And, you know, frankly, group of five coaches like to hold back on, you know, favoring their own for the most part it's it, it's really interesting um so let's talk about that a bit john why do you think it is that you know coaches like jamie chadwell you know were reluctant to even rate their team ahead of other group of five teams yeah i mean it was one of the things that kind of blew me away today i was looking the usa today released their final regular season coaches poll and They released it by coach so you could go in and break down, you know, what coach voted what. We got to see that Dabo Sweeney, for instance, voted Ohio State 11th, which that's a different conversation for a different day, but I felt it needed to be brought up. But the thing that caught my eye and something that ended up leading to to us digging into it a little bit more earlier today was Jamie Chadwell voting uh, Cincinnati 6th and Coastal Carolina 7th. I was kind of blown away that a coach at an undefeated school wouldn't have had a little more confidence to put his team higher in the rankings. And that led to us going down and looking at every group of five coach and finding out that only six of the 30 group of five coaches um, who have a coaches poll vote this year voted Cincinnati in the top four. So only six of the 30 thought that one of the group of five teams deserved a spot in the college football playoff which leads to the question of, hey, if you don't believe in yourself, who's going to believe in you? And that's something that's a question for life in general, but particularly when we're talking about this, if you don't think you're good enough, why should they think you're good enough? We already know that the Power Five coaches, we already know that the selection committee doesn't think the group of five is good enough. They don't think they deserve inclusion at the big table with the traditional powerhouse programs from the power five but why on earth do these group of five coaches not push themselves and they have a vote their vote counts just as much as any other coach why are they so reluctant to push themselves up the rankings and I think one of the things I you know proposed to Zach earlier today when we were kind of discussing the um, the bones of what we were going to talk about here was that I think part of it has to do with a lot of these coaches don't want to rock the boat because their eventual plan 
and hope is to jump to a power five school. We see it all the time. Group of five coaches rarely last, at least good group of five coaches, the elite group of five coaches rarely last long at a particular school because they're always looking for that big payday. They're always looking for that big paycheck from a power five program. And there are plenty of power five programs willing to write checks to these coaches and they don't want to upset the established order. They're okay with being screwed over for a couple of years at a coastal Carolina, at a Cincinnati, at a Louisiana, if that means that they'll eventually be among the elite. They'll get an opportunity to coach a, you know, a Texas A&M program or a UCLA or who have you. So that's one of the things that really stood out to me, and that was one of the only reasons I could really come up with, because otherwise I can't rationalize that any of these coaches actually don't believe that they could stack up at least in a one game season against these, because we all know college football coaches, you know, they're very prideful. It's very rarely will you find a football coach or a coach in any sport who doesn't think their team can beat the other team across from them, because you can't have that mentality when you're going to battle against another opponent, you can't have that mentality. You'll never win. So I can't imagine that Jamie Chadwell, and we're going to use him as the biggest example because he coached an undefeated team this year and had them seventh in the rings, even below another group of five team, even though there is an argument to be made that Coastal deserves to be ahead of Cincinnati. I don't think it's that outlandish of an argument to make that Coastal deserved to be the highest ranked group of five team. I personally favor Cincinnati. I think Zach personally favors Coastal himself. So There's definitely an argument there. Why is Jamie Chapwell afraid to make that argument himself? I just can't rationalize that in my mind. I have no problem with where he had them ranked. I mean, to me, that probably makes sense for Coastal to be about seventh where he had them. I personally probably would have put them right there. I would have had Cincinnati fourth. And shout out to Luke Fickle because he did have his Bearcats fourth. He did put his chips on the table and say, my team deserves to be in the college football playoff. I just don't understand why Jamie Chadwell doesn't agree with that, why he didn't think his team, if not deserved to be in the playoff, at least deserved to be the highest ranking group of five program. It is really interesting when you think about coaches who are in that situation themselves. And uh, there's two things I want to mention here when I was looking through this data myself that I found really interesting. First of all, only one group of five head coach voted for Coastal Carolina higher than Cincinnati. And it was Steve Campbell at South Alabama. You know, another Sunbelt school, it makes total sense. But when your other conference, you know, when your other conference coaches have your back more than you do, that's really strange. You know, I, I think it is. It, it just kind of illuminates even further. What is Chadwell doing there? And, uh, you know, you mentioned maybe he was looking forward to the next gig down the road, but he just signed another contract extension with Coastal. So, you know, maybe he's just too superlatively honest or whatnot and thinks, you know, he needs to take this, you know, lend this the gravitas that he thinks it deserves. I, I totally understand that and still have confidence in yourself. The other thing I want to mention, you know, you mentioned Luke Fickle voted for his team at number four. 
And you mentioned only six coaches total out of the group of five voted for Cincinnati at number four. Let's look at who those other coaches were, because I think it does give some credence to what you were talking about. Are, you know, are they wandering eyes looking for that next opportunity? Craig Bull at Wyoming, probably, you know, for as hot as he was coming out of North Dakota State, he's not the kind of coach, I mean, at his age and at, you know, what he's done relatively in Laramie since leaving North Dakota State, he's probably not looking for the next job down the road. You know, Laramie's probably where he retires. That's just the way it goes. No good, no bad, but he's not really hunting more. Sonny Dykes at SMU, he's chased that dream before. You know, he knows... He knows it's always going to be on the table. If you continue doing the job well, you're going to get looked at again. Makes sense. You know, Brian Harson at Boise State, he's also been there before. He knows teams can stack up. He's going to have the confidence to say, you could probably stack up, you know. Not only has he coached Boise State himself, but he also coached on those Chris Peterson teams as a coordinator and as a position coach. He, kn- he knows the drill. That's a prerequisite of being the Boise State head coach is having that kind of belief. I think that's in the uh, the application process. Yeah. And then, you know, the other two are a couple of MAC coaches, actually, which I found interesting. Um, well, also Chad Lunsford um, at uh, Georgia Southern had Cincinnati at number four as well. Interestingly, had Coastal Carolina at number eight, so... Again, you know, conference pride doesn't always hold up there. But, you know, Lance Leopold at Buffalo had Cincinnati at number four. He's won so many damn national championships at the Division Three level that, you know, he's going to have that confidence as a coach that, hey, anyone can stack up on any given day. And, uh, you know, there was one more. Oh, Thomas Hammock at Northern Illinois. You know, I, I think... You know, he's a guy who's at a school, a very comfortable situation for him, recent coach, not necessarily wandering eyes. I, I think all of those make sense, and they kind of fit within that, you know, that that range. Because, you know, you look conversely, um, you know, the only coach that didn't rate Cincinnati in the, you know, in single digits was Billy Napier at Louisiana. He had Cincinnati at 10 and Coastal Carolina at 11. You got to imagine he's got to be thinking it might not be happening this year, but, you know, in the next year or two, he's going to be having a jump up in, you know, uh, status, in pay scale, in uh, competition, in, in all of the above. So, you know, I without being able to get into these guys' heads directly, it, it we we can only speculate. But I think you're making a strong speculation there, John. Yeah, I think Napier was probably the one that jumped off the most as that guy who definitely has his eyes set on another job down the road. I mean, he's at least had preliminary discussions with Auburn. I think it was announced Monday that he was no longer. Um, <clears throat> in consideration for the job, whether that means he turned it down or they decided to go in another direction, it's open for interpretation there. But he's definitely a guy who has eyes for um, higher-level jobs. And I think you make a good point about talking about a guy like Craig Bull, who he doesn't care 
what the power five thinks of him at this point in his career. Like you said, he's perfectly happy where he is at Wyoming. I'd be stunned if he hasn't had overtures from bigger programs than the Cowboys as much success as he's had in Laramie so far. So I think obviously he's very content where he is. And then there's something to that. I mean, we've seen plenty of group of five coaches make the leap to power five and they ended up in situations that weren't really, you know, sustainable. They struggled and then lost opportunities. Whereas Craig Bowles been at Wyoming for a while. He's content there. His job security is good. I mean, there's, there's something to be said for job security in any profession um, that I think a lot of coaches in particular take lightly. So, so yeah, I mean, I, one thing that I found interesting too, and in regards to coastal Carolina is how, that has to sit with the Chanticleers football team right now. Like how does Grayson McCall, what does Grayson McCall think of Jamie Chadwell voting Coastal Carolina seventh? I guarantee you if um, Grayson McCall had a a vote in uh, the coaches poll or AP poll or whatever, he wouldn't vote Coastal Carolina seventh. I guarantee you he'd have Coastal Carolina in the top four. He'd have them above Cincinnati. He'd have them in position to play in the college football playoff. So I do wonder if, um, you know, players on teams get wind of this, particularly at Coastal, what they're going to think of their coach. Because what you want out of a football coach is someone who's going to have his team's back. And I don't want to say that because you didn't vote your team high enough, that means you don't have their back. But I can tell you, if I was a player on Coastal Carolina, it would bother me that my coach thought we were the seventh best team in college football. When I think there's an argument that can be made in the very least – that we should that they should be above Cincinnati, if not, you know, Texas A&M and others um, that are ahead of them. So I, I'm I'm very surprised by that. That was the one that really blew me away. And I think that it's going to take group of five coaches rallying together in the future and you know overvoting their programs because the Power Five coaches and the AP voters they undervote your programs constantly. They push you down further than you deserve to be. And if you put yourselves right where you probably think you deserve to be, you're never going to make that leap. So overvalue yourself. You know, if you're Jamie Chadwell, vote your team number one. I don't care. I mean, that's, I mean, it's your vote. They're not going to strip it from you. It's your vote. Put that to use. Vote your team number one. Show that kind of confidence. And You've got to make it happen for yourself in some capacity, I think, before any other um, section of the country is going to take yourself seriously. So many fans, so many coaches, so many analysts do not take Group of Five programs seriously. And I think it's going to take, you know, Coastal said all year, anybody, anywhere. If they had a cancellation, they'd play anybody. So obviously they have that confidence in themselves. And Chadwell has helped build that culture of confidence. So why now, when he has the opportunity to bolster that confidence more, to make a statement in that regard, why does he sell his team short? I'm I'm honestly, I'm very disappointed that I saw that. And I mean, it's not all the group of five coaches' fault. They are traditionally working um, without a full deck. They're constantly climbing an uphill battle in the sport. So I don't understand why they're, why they're walking outside and flattening their own tires before they get in the car. 
You know, I think that's fair. And I think part of it is these coaches come at it for, at different points in their career with different motivations. Like we've said, some of them are motivated by the next job on the line. Some of them are perfectly content where they're at. The other one, the other groups that I that really kind of struck me here were the four group of five coaches that have previously held power five jobs. You know, you have Butch Davis at Florida International, Hugh Freeze at Liberty, Todd Graham at Hawaii, and yes, we're counting those independents out as group of five teams this year for the sake of this argument. And then Frank Solich at Ohio. All four of these coaches had Cincinnati at either five or six. They kept them out of the top four, all four of them. All four of them had Coastal Carolina at 10 or lower. But, you know, you have these four coaches. You have guys like Butch Davis that have been in contention for the national championship in the past himself. Guys like Frank Solich that, you know, have been in in the, you know, the perpetual hot seat of a place like Lincoln, Nebraska. Hugh Freeze knows it in Oxford. You know, Todd Graham is a perpetual seat hopper. He, you know, he's had several Power Five jobs in that regard. But all of these guys said they can't do it. It's really interesting to think that way because, you know, ultimately it comes down to there is no one single motive for these group of five coaches. And it's a group of five because there's five distinct conferences, you know. A guy like Steve Campbell is going to look out for a Coastal Carolina, even if Jamie Chadwell might not necessarily. Um but, you know, we, we, we break these down by conferences. And American Athletic Conference voters, you know, coaches from that conference voted Cincinnati an average of 1.4 spots higher than Sunbelt coaches did. Obviously, some of that is personal self-interest, and it comes down to conference interest just as much as anything else. There are academic papers out there that have analyzed the coaches' poll and showed biases you know, coaches overvoting other conference members, uh, opponents that they've played already, even their alma mater, if they're, you know, it, these natural biases play into these these polls. So you know what? Until group of five coaches lean into those biases more themselves, they're going to continue to get screwed in the end. So, yeah, I think you're right, John. It, it, it's really fascinating to think about this. Is there any last take you want to leave people with before we move on to our break and then go on to talking about some bowl games? Yeah, I mean, I, you made a good point about traditional biases too, and and you're going to obviously bias teams in your own, be biased towards teams in your own leagues because you see those teams every week. You've played against those teams, and this is why the coaches' poll being a part of national championship considerations with the BCS in the past um, was stupid because. You know, these coaches aren't watching every game every week. They don't have time to watch every game every week. So they're going to naturally lean towards their own leagues because those are the teams they're most familiar with. So, yeah, I mean, there's bias in every vote. And I implore group of five coaches to use those biases more to their own advantage because the other guys, they're going to do it. You need to do it, too. Honestly, I'd love to see a 130 coach 
coaches poll. I don't know why we restrict it to only 61 or 62 this season, I think. Normally, it's somewhere between 60 and 65 coaches on that poll in any given year. Why not make it all 130? You know, if you're going to have the biases, the only way you can really flatten it out is by letting everybody throw their biases on the table. That's That, that was the whole thing about the computer rankings in the BCS, was this computer is going to rate this team higher than the other. Let's flatten it. So, anyway, that's off topic now. But yes, coaches, do yourselves a favor. Treat yourself. Get your shit together. And, uh, you know, I mean, after you've listened to this, you know, go do 20 push-ups and get your heads out of your asses. And for the rest of you, go do whatever you need to do on this break. We'll be right back, and uh, we'll be talking about some New Year's Six matchups, so stay tuned. from our break everybody we're here at the saturday blitz podcast ready to talk to you guys about new year's six matchups <laughs> we're gonna get down and dirty with these really quickly um we've got the four new year's six games and then in our final segment we'll look at those two semifinals in a little bit more depth but let's just run through these quick john we got the cotton bowl <laughs> on december 30th you've got big 12 champion oklahoma coming in with their two losses you've got sec finalist Florida coming in with their three losses. Um, obviously, both of these teams have offenses that can, you know, make things happen. Defensively, um, this is the kind of game where I think you should probably take the over. Whatever it is. Yeah, whatever they th- what Vegas throws out at you, um, assume they're going to score more. And now that I've said this, this is going to be like a 17-15 thriller for all of you. So what are your general thoughts on this game, John? Do you think they got the matchup right? I mean, obviously Oklahoma was going to be in as the Big 12 champion, but... Is Florida the right opponent for them? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said at the beginning, I think Florida was probably one of the 10 best teams in college football this year. But I just have trouble, so much trouble forgiving them for that loss to LSU. I mean, they played – and obviously they had a lot of things go against them in that game that were very fluky and it probably shouldn't have happened, but it did happen. They obviously proved themselves as a top-10 team in my mind by how they competed against Alabama – Although I think there were some weird variances that kept that game a little bit closer than it actually was if you look at total yards and stuff like that. So I would have probably preferred Coastal in this game against Oklahoma. Obviously, Oklahoma earned the spot with a win in the Big 12 title game, uh, but this was always going to be a Florida. I'm excited for the matchup in that it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be a track meet. There'll be loads of offensive talent on the field, but I'm also interested in the defensive matchups here because one of the things that's kind of quietly happened is Oklahoma's turned into a halfway decent defensive football team over the last seven weeks or so of the season. That's really been the catalyst for their rise and their comeback from an early deficit where they had two early season losses and everybody was wondering what the heck was wrong with the Sooners. Their defense played a lot better over the second half of the season. So it'll be interesting to see 
against one of the better offensive teams in the nation, Florida, if that holds up or if it was just a product of playing in what's really been a down Big 12 this year. Florida is what Florida is. You know, they've got a Heisman contending quarterback. They've got some electric players on their team. I think they're exactly the team that you'd pick if you made these selections based off of five-year rolling recruiting averages. And I think, honestly, that's probably what the college football playoff selection committee does. They look at the brand name and they look at that. Florida is a talented team. I'm not going to take that away from them. But frankly, I'd... It just feels like the usual suspects. That said, who do you think is going to win? Uh, just off the top with the fact that I think Florida is going to have more opt-outs than Oklahoma. We've already seen Kyle Pitts opt out of the bowl game, which is a huge loss for Florida's offense. I'll take Oklahoma in this one, to be honest, because I think the Sooners are a little bit better defensively. And I think they'll have more of their top talented players playing in this game than Florida will. You know, I think that's probably fair. And, uh, you know, I think with the, you know, not having the pressure of a college football playoff over them is going to allow Oklahoma to play a little bit looser this season in the postseason. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. I think this is Oklahoma's game to lose. Let's move on down the line because we got a Peach Bowl on January 1st that gives us our group of five matchup. We've been talking about Cincinnati plenty this podcast so far. They get their chance to take down a Power 5 powerhouse in number 9, Georgia. Uh, the 7-2 and two Bulldogs come into this game having obviously heated up over the past couple weeks. Um, JT Daniels makes that a completely different offense than what they had earlier in the season with Stetson Bennett and crew. Um, I mean, what a quarterback name that is, may I just say. That's a total aside, but Stetson Bennett sounds like your parents named you that expecting you to go be a power five quarterback. They Particularly at Georgia. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like naming your kid Colt. You're expected to be a Texas quarterback if, if you're named Colt. But yeah, Stetson just feels like it, you, were, you were born and named immediately after birth to go play between the hedges. Fortunately, it hasn't worked out so well for him. Um, at least not yet. But, you know, JT Daniels has changed things up there. That said, he... he Honestly, he's playing a defense that's as good as any that Georgia has faced this season. Uh, we talked about it. Cincinnati is ridiculous on that side of the ball. Um, their offense is quietly proficient. You know, it's not one that we talk about as just this, you know, blaze of glory. But, you know, as you mentioned, they are, I think, top 15 right now in terms of scoring, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, you know, they can put points on the scoreboard. They keep your ass out of the end zone and I like the Bearcats by two touchdowns. Wow. I, I wish Cincinnati would have got matched up with someone else. I think this is a difficult matchup for them because like, like you said, I think Georgia's playing really, really good football down the stretch when they made the change, uh, when JT Daniels was finally cleared for the Bulldogs to be able to play. I, I think that offense took on a totally different dynamic. They were playing really with an arm tied behind their back with Stetson Bennett. And I don't mean to um, begrudge that point too much further. Bennett tries his best. He's just not good enough to play quarterback at Georgia. He doesn't have the talent 
that a JT Daniels had, who's one of the, you know, highest ranked quarterbacks in his recruiting class. I think he was the highest ranked quarterback in his recruiting class. So I, um, man, I think this is a true toss up game in my mind. Defensively, this is going to be probably the premier matchup of the bowl season. You've got a Georgia defense that we've known for several years now under Kirby Smart have been one of the best defenses in college football. They're going to be difficult for Cincinnati to move the ball. And then the Bearcats statistically have the best defense in college football this year. So feels like one of those low-scoring games. Whichever quarterback avoids the big mistake probably comes out on top. I do think Georgia's probably going to win this game, but I think it's going to be real close. I think something like 21-17, I think it'll come down to the absolute wire. Um, and, and somebody makes a big mistake in the fourth quarter that turns the game. Yeah, I'm calling 24-10 Cincinnati. So there you go, folks. We got some disagreement. Just what we needed. Let's move on to the Fiesta, Fiesta Bowl because this game is, well, this is probably not the premier New Year's Six Bowl game. Let's just put it that way. This year, the Pac-12 is effectively what the Big East used to be, uh, required by law to have at least one spot in these games. Um, But, you know, they're playing Iowa State, three-loss Iowa State team. We've talked about the merits and the demerits of Iowa State already. You know, we... I, I don't want to beat that horse anymore. So let's let's beat up on the Ducks. Um, this is a Ducks team that's the Pac-12 champion by virtue of the fact that Washington first got COVID and couldn't play at Austin Stadium against the Ducks, and then got COVID and couldn't play again, and then continued to have to deal with COVID-19 issues on their roster. Just, I mean, absolutely decimated what's happening there with the Huskies. Um you know, as a Duck fan, I you know, I'm a rival, but my heart goes out. That's that's absolutely messed up. And, you know, no player should have had to have been dealing with this in this season. But an abundance of caution means jack squat, doesn't it? So here's Oregon. You know, this is a team that came in this year. We're, we're past the Justin Herbert era. Um, this is a team where defense you know, was supposed to make the bones for them. And, you know, Oregon definitely does not have an offensive identity like they used to. This is a team that, despite losing two games by very close calls, um, definitely does not feel like a Pac-12 champion or one of the, you know one of the 12 best teams in the country in terms of New Year's Six matchups. And obviously the number 25 next to their name from the committee says that just as loudly. That said, uh, I got a ride or die with my Ducks. Um, You know, I think it's ridiculous that Iowa State's in this game in the first place. Um, Frankly, they, you know, because they're not having the Rose Bowl this year, this should have been the Big Ten Pac-12 matchup. It should be Indiana playing there, probably. But I digress. I won't bitch about that further. I'm going to say Oregon by a touchdown. Um, And that's mainly because I think uh, they can force Brock Purdy into some mistakes with that secondary. Yeah, I mean, that's the... 
like you said about Oregon not having an offensive identity. Defensively, they definitely started developing that identity in the last couple of games, forcing three Keaton Slovis picks in the Pac-12 title game. Kayvon Thibodeau off the edge was just an absolute terror. He's absolute. He's 100. He's one of those guys who you think is going to be really good coming out of high school. He's one of the top-ranked recruits in the a couple years ago's recruiting class. And then he's just exactly that dude when he got to Oregon, like immediately as good as advertised, absolute monster. If his mother is still working a job, she should go ahead and quit because that man is about to get paid after next year. So I do worry that Oregon offensively is not going to have quite enough because Iowa State's got a good defense too. They'll make things difficult. And then I think that Oregon will lean on that running game uh, or Iowa State will lean more on their running game. Oregon will probably do the same obviously, but I, I do think that Brees Hall um, and Brock Purdy get together. I think that Iowa State ends up winning this game in probably the least interesting matchup of the New Year Six, to be honest, not to say anything against your Ducks, but watching an Iowa State team that we both don't think should be there play the number 25 ranked team in the country in a New Year Six Bowl just doesn't really um, move the needle for me. Yeah, Oregon is the new 2004 Pittsburgh. I mean, they're the team that you slot in because Utah needed somebody to play. That's exactly what that was in the BCS Buster era. That's what Oregon is now in this, you know. Um, You had to slot in a Pac-12 team contractually. You had to take the conference champion. Um, Obviously, the, the committee would have loved if USC won that game and gave them a few more headaches and talking points to deal with. But they certainly had enough talking points. And one of those were the number five Texas A&M Aggies. Uh, Jimbo Fisher's squad will be heading to South Florida for the Orange Bowl on January 2nd. Um, and they'll be playing number 13 North Carolina. So we're seeing... Uh, Jimbo Fisher, Mac Brown, uh, there at Hard Rock Stadium. Uh, for the longest time this season, before we saw championship game losses by Florida and Iowa State, North Carolina was the highest-ranked three-loss team over the past few weeks. And uh, committee absolutely loves the Tar Heels. They, they, they've been enamored with them for a while and obviously, they've liked Texas A&M as well. Um, do you think Texas A&M, though, is going to be a bit deflated, given that they were left out of the college football playoff and felt that they had that argument to be in? And if so, do you think that's going to work in North Carolina's favor? You know, I don't really think Texas a and is going to have that kind of hangover. I don't think that's going to be something they can really use as an excuse, because this is one of the this is probably the biggest bowl game Texas A&M has got the chance to play in and in a long time. Like I don't have the, this is the preeminent bowl game they've gone to in the Jimbo Fisher era. Um, you know, probably since what 2012, they made the cotton bowl before it was, you know, a part of the BCS bowls or new year six bowls with uh, Johnny Manziel. But this is a, a huge opportunity for Texas A&M to make a statement to try to prove to everyone out there that, Hey, not only should we have made the college football playoff this year, but also we are a program to be reckoned with going forward. I think this is a really interesting game because North Carolina, 
last time we really saw them against Miami, their running game was just unstoppable. I mean, they put up over 400 yards on the ground. Now, Texas A&M does a really good job of stopping the run. They give up less than 100 yards per game on the ground. So I think it'll come down to, you know, can North Carolina find that balance offensively? Can they run the ball to allow Sam Howell and the play-action passing game to really open up? But I do think a and is a better team in this matchup. I do think it'll be a pretty close game. It wouldn't surprise me if this is a game that's probably in the 30s or even 40s scoring-wise between both teams because I could see both quarterbacks really showing out. Uh, but I do think that uh, A&M's experience with a senior quarterback in Kellen Mond, I think that's what wins the day for them. And I think the Aggies come out with the win. We're just disagreeing left and right because, you know, I set you up there. I think I, I, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I think Jimbo Fisher can talk about having this team ready all that he wants. Um, and, you know, I, I think Kellen Mond does have a decent game. But in the end, A&M's players, you know, for as big a game as this is for Texas A&M fans – the biggest game they've had in a long time and for Texas A&M players it's the biggest game they've played yet in their college football careers they wanted more they could taste more more was right there on the horizon in my final set of projections for Saturday Blitz that came out last Saturday I thought the committee was going to give them that more I thought they were going to find a way to justify having that second SEC team in come hell or high water. And I thought they were going to have them at three just to avoid having a rematch against Alabama. Obviously, I got that wrong. But I think Texas A&M was fairly confident that they were going to get in. And I think, you know, North Carolina never had any compunctions about that. Obviously, they were disappointed once they were out of the ACC championship contention. But this is their Super Bowl. You know, they can... And for Texas A&M, this is a consolation prize. And that's why I think Mac Brown's going to have this team champing at the bit and raring to get. And I think they're going to come out. I think it's going to be close. I think it stays in single digits, you know, that margin of victory. But I think North Carolina gets it. And this is the one of those New Year's Six matchups that you can't really say, like Florida and Oklahoma, as we're used to seeing. There's definitely some new blood uh, with both of these teams making the New Year's Six for the first time. Yeah, we definitely do have new eyes, new new uh, new faces to put eyes on here. Um, obviously, aside from the the head coaches that are leading both of these teams, so I will give you that, John. But you know, everybody, we're. Uh, three of four in disagreement so that's probably a good sign for you know entertaining matchups if nothing else as you're coming along we're going to take one final break here and when we come back we'll be looking at those two college football playoff semifinals stay tuned Welcome back for our last segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just finished talking about the New Year's Six games outside of the college football playoff, and now it's time to talk about those two semifinal matchups on New Year's Day. 
One of them obviously will be happening in Arlington, Texas, as we've talked about. The other will be at the traditional Sugar Bowl site at the Superdome in New Orleans. Um, let's talk about that Sugar Bowl first. I'm going to save best for last for you, John, since you, uh, since you have a rooting interest in that game. So let's talk about Clemson, Ohio State first. Um, you know, we both mentioned the committee probably got these two teams right in the order they put them in, um, in terms of their relative skill and, and, you know, what they bring to the table. I, I think the debate over number four or who the last team in was going to be was a bigger debate than whether Ohio State got in. But honestly, you know, this it should be a game between two premier Heisman caliber quarterbacks. Trevor Lawrence has looked like that more in recent weeks. Justin Fields, what's up with him though? You know, I, I I've uh, I'm not gonna say that he's regressed, but he has not looked like one of the best quarterbacks in the country in the past couple weeks. Uh, do you think he's going to be able to right that ship coming into this game? Are we due for another, like, instant classic between the Buckeyes and the Tigers? Or are we more likely to see what everybody around the country is thinking, that Clemson is just going to slaughter this six-win Ohio State team? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the rumor was, at least, that I saw was Justin Fields was dealing with a sprained thumb on his throwing hand. So, I mean, that could be you know, a cause for some of his issues. He certainly didn't play well against Northwestern last week in the Big Ten championship game. They really won that game thanks to Trey Sermon breaking out on the ground. What I worry about with Ohio State in this game, Zach, is, you know, one of the big things about them only having played six games is that they really haven't developed that identity yet. They haven't worked through their adversity and figured out who they are as a team. Clemson, on the other hand, is fully formed as who they're going to be and who they are. They know what kind of football team they have. They've worked through some early season defensive issues. I mean, watching them play defense in the ACC championship game against Notre Dame was in contrasting that with how they played defense in South Bend when they played the Irish earlier in the season. Those look like two totally different defensive units. Brent Venables, obviously one of the best defensive minds in college football, has figured things out on that side of the ball. They're starting to have some more playmakers Um at wide receiver step up. I mean, EJ Williams last week made a couple of ridiculous catches really signaling that maybe he's having that Justin Ross type freshman rise. Like when we saw him kind of make a statement at the end of the regular season in the college football playoff in 2018. So Lawrence and Fields are probably going to be number one and number two in the draft uh, in 2021. They were number one and number two coming out of high school in 2018, both quarterbacks from Georgia. They have a long history against one another and, you know, it's a rematch of the college football playoff semifinals from last year in which, honestly, the Buckeyes probably should have won. I mean, they had every opportunity and, and really blew that game, it felt like, at the end. So I just think that Clemson, like I said, is the more complete team at this moment. I think Ohio State figuring out, unleashing Trey Sermon and figuring out what they can do in the running game is a big boost. But I just don't think they have as much talent um, at least established talent defensively to defend Clemson in this game. There's no Chase Young uh, off the edge this year. They lost a lot in the secondary from last year, and I think that's going to be a struggle against Trevor Lawrence, who's really uh, beginning to play 
uh, at an extremely high level. So I think Clemson ends up winning this game and booking a ticket to the national championship again. Well, you know, I, I think you said most of what's relevant about this game. And just like I did for the ACC championship game, I'm going to once again say to hell with Dabo Sweeney. And uh, as much as I'm not much more of a fan of Ryan Day or the Ohio State Buckeyes, uh, given I'm here in State College and uh, in Big Ten country, we're going to go with the Big Ten team here. I I think Ohio State... um, You know, I think last year you're absolutely right. Ohio State, for a lot of that game, looked like the better of the two teams. Looked like they, you know, were going to marginally pull out the victory like they, or or definitely were capable of doing so. I think this year Clemson looks like the better team, but just doesn't put it away and allows Ohio State to stay in it, and the Buckeyes pull off the victory, because mainly because I want to see Dabo lose and, and cry salty, salty tears. Here, here, particularly against the team he doesn't think should be there. That would be fantastic. It'd be delicious. So Imagine Ryan Day's got uh, that coach's poll ranking posted in the weight room and on the practice fields uh, for these next couple of weeks leading up to this one. Oh, yeah, and if he doesn't, Ryan, I hear I know you're listening to this. Do it. Let's move on to that other game, the Jerry World Bowl there in Arlington. Um, we've got number one Alabama. We've got number four Notre Dame. You know, we've got I don't think anybody can beat this Alabama team, John. And I'm not saying that to jinx them. I'm legitimately saying I think I, I I think Nick Saban has his three-headed dog from hell, you know? I, I think I think Mac Jones, Devontae Smith, and Najee Harris are his Cerberus. And uh, they will chomp the ass off of just about anything that's put in front of them. And that includes a Notre Dame team that certainly got more than soundly beat by Clemson in their, you know, first and as yet only loss this season. I think they're itching for another loss on New Year's Day. I I really do. Um, What was the opening spread on this set at? It was ridiculous, wasn't it? Anywhere from like 17 and a half to 20 and a half at some places opening. I was going to say, I thought it was 19, 19 and a half or something, but I didn't remember exactly, so I didn't, I, you know, I figured I'd, I'd ask before I threw out crazy numbers. Because 19 and a half is crazy. You know, the fact that that's what I had in my head and the fact that you said anywhere from 17 and a half to 20, it you know, it speaks right in that range. And, you know, frankly... I, I I see Alabama covering whatever that spread finally lands at. This game, much more than that Clemson-Ohio State game, it's just going to be a whitewash. And frankly, um, you know, the college football playoff selection committee would have done a real service to Notre Dame fans if after Brian Kelly had come out and said, I'm going, we're going to strike against the Rose Bowl if they don't let parents come, 
If the college football playoff committee had just come out and said, we will no longer take Notre Dame under consideration because they have requested to have their name removed from the list of contenders, call their damn bluff. And then put Cincinnati in, you know? Basically, Brian Kelly was ceding the floor to his former team, everybody. Why did you not see that? But instead, we have the Irish getting the beat down instead of... You know, Cincinnati probably would have gotten the beat down as well. I'm not going to be, you know, I just said they had freaking Cerberus on offense. That, you know, I mean, Alabama's a juggernaut right now. They probably would have beat down Cincinnati, but Cincinnati's got the better defense right now. You know, if anybody deserved a chance to try to shut down a triple-headed Heisman threat, it was the best defense in the country statistically. Instead, we get Notre Dame getting beat down once again by Alabama, and that's, that is what it is. Like I said, I don't want to jinx them, John, but it, it, there's just no other way to pick this game. Yeah, to me, I think the, the three best teams in college football were pretty obvious uh, when you watch them play. Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. Uh, I think any one of those teams could conceivably win the national championship. I don't think anybody you put it for this year really – had a shot at pulling off an upset and actually winning a title. Um, there's an argument to be made about who deserved to be there. But, yeah, I mean, you said it. In terms of the talent Alabama has on offense, and that's not to mention they got an offensive line that's probably going to win the Joe Moore Award this year. Losing Landon Dickerson to a devastating knee injury in the fourth quarter against Florida is huge. He's a guy who's a permanent captain. He's been arguably the best center in college football this year but they replace him with a fifth-year senior start, senior at center, and Chris Owens, who started almost all of, or at least half of last year at center before they shuffled some things. So a guy with plenty of starting experience and his own right, surrounded by four other monsters as well. So, yeah, I mean, we haven't seen this level of a triumvirate of talent on offense with Heisman talk since the 40s, since Army in the 1940s. I mean, there's a legitimate shot that Mac Jones and Devontae Smith are going to finish one and two in the Heisman race in some order. That's going to be the first time that's happened since 1945. And they'll also be the, if Najee Harris finishes in the top four, that'd be the first program since 1946 army to have three in the top five and the first to ever have three in the top four and three in the top five probably feels like a lock depending on where Kyle Trask and Trevor Lawrence end up falling in the rankings. So I just can't, I just don't see, Notre Dame having much of a shot in this game and obviously Brian Kelly is going to use that as motivation his team has a lot of pride they're going to come out and they're going to play really really hard but playing hard only gets you so far when the talent differential is as great as I think this game is I don't think it's as big as it was in 2012 when the two met in Miami uh, with the BCS national championship on the line I don't think the talent difference is that great as it was in that game. I mean, just looking at the offense and defensive lines in those in that game, you could tell Alabama was just going to dominate in that game. They were just physically superior. Brian Kelly's done a lot over the last eight years to build both of those lines up for Notre Dame to get them to be able to play with the big boys. He keeps saying that, but we keep not seeing him do it when it matters the most, right? We've seen the loss to Clemson last week. We saw when they made the playoffs in 2018 uh, against Clemson. They lost 30 to three. I think the final score was in that game after all the talk being that 
this was not your 2012 Notre Dame. Well, until they prove that on the football field, I'm going to continue to assume it still is that 2012 Notre Dame, and they're not yet legitimate contenders. And I think Brian Kelly's done a great job with that program, as good as anybody probably could have done in the country. But Alabama's going to win this game. I don't see it being particularly close. I think Notre Dame, like I said, has pride. They play hard for a while. It's closer in the first quarter than maybe a lot of people think, but Alabama ends up winning this game by three touchdowns. Yeah, I think that's about right. You know, I, I'm sorry to all you Notre Dame fans out there, and I'm sorry to you, Manti, but, uh, you know, I think Notre Dame this year is the Lene Kakua of uh, contenders in this college football playoff. They don't exist, everybody. They're that non-existent girlfriend. So, you know, take that for what it's worth, and, uh, you know, we're probably going to get the final that we all expected we were going to get anyway. Um, you know, it, either Alabama, Ohio State, or Alabama Clemson is a, a final most of us would have easily expected at the beginning of the season had it been a normal season. We'll probably expect the same damn thing in 2021 and 2022, the way the college football playoff goes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. It's always great to be here with you all on the Saturday Blitz podcast. Always great to talk with you, John. Any last words you want to throw out to the listeners before we turn this one loose for the the week? No, I mean, just uh, happy to have finally gotten to this point. Um, the finish line's finally firmly in sight. Should be a lot of interesting bowls to watch this year, even with the opt-outs. So hope everybody enjoys the holidays, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, happy holidays to everybody. Um, we will not be on next week. I have uh, prior obligations that we will not be able to record. So this is our last Saturday Blitz podcast of 2020. Thank you for another wonderful year of being with you all. Uh, even as we've been dealing with a pandemic throughout three quarters of this year, it's been a real pleasure to at least have this space to get to talk to you all. I hope you all stay safe, stay healthy, have a wonderful Christmas if you happen to celebrate it, and we'll be back again with you in 2021.